Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. This morning, we're going to continue the study of the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus' model of how we should pray. It's not something that should be repeated verbatim, although that's not bad, but it's more of a structure, an outline of how we should conduct our conversations with God. And today we are coming to verse 10. There are only 14 words in this verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus often spoke about the kingdom of God, and especially in the book of Matthew. He mentions the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And probably those two things mean about the same thing. The primary meaning of the word kingdom, both in the Old Testament Hebrew and in the New Testament Greek, means God's reign, R-E-I-G-N, God's sovereign ruling. For example, consider Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And I think you can hear the basic meaning of the kingdom as rule or reign. The basic meaning of God's kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule, his reign, his action, his lordship, his sovereign governance over all things. Now, repeatedly, during his ministry, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he said, the kingdom is at hand. It's here, right now, available to you. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Even more explicitly, in Luke chapter 17, he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's in you. The kingdom is already here among you. It is in it's in present in our midst right now. He rules in the hearts of the believers. Yet in our text today, Jesus instructs us to pray for the coming of his kingdom. Your kingdom come. 
as if it's not here yet. So how can the kingdom of God be both present and not yet present? The answer is that the kingdom of God is God's reign and his rule, and it is being introduced in an ongoing process. First, his sovereign action in the world is to redeem and to deliver a people out of the kingdom of darkness and adopt them into his kingdom of light. And his rule begins in the hearts of those believers. But then at a future time, he will finish this process and renew his people and set up his throne on earth in Jerusalem to rule the world in peace and justice. So we should pray every day, thy kingdom come. Bring the kingdom, Lord. Bring your reign fully into people's lives, into my life, into the world, both now in my lifetime and in the future. God's kingdom is God's rule and reign. And when he rules, his will is done. So many scholars argue that these two requests, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in verse 10, are almost synonymous. Jesus said as much in another passage in Matthew chapter 7, 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So doing his will explains what God's kingdom is all about. They certainly are very closely related, and I will treat them as part of the same request this morning. So this is a model of prayer. It's a pattern that we should follow as we pray. So the question is, just how should we go about praying this? What should be the attitude of our heart as we pray these very simple, straightforward words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven? First of all, I think we need to pray with an honest desire for it to be done. These are not just words to repeat. The tense of these three requests are in the imperative. They are like a command. And in the Greek, they are placed first at the start of the request, so it makes it even stronger and more bold. It's as if it's saying, be hallowed your name. Come your kingdom. Be done your will. Jesus encourages us to pray boldly. But remember who we are addressing or talking to in this prayer. We are praying to a superior, the ultimate high God, our Father in heaven. And so we don't dare command him to do this or anything else. So the correct interpretation of these first three requests 
should be, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Because you see, ultimately, it is God who will bring his kingdom. It is God who will cause his will to be done. It is God who will bring heaven to earth. And by prayer, we are allowed to participate in God's program and plan. And so we can pray boldly, let it happen. This means that it shapes our priorities and our desires. We are urgently praying for his kingdom to come. We really want it with all of our heart that his will would be done because of his plan of redemption has become our greatest hope and desire. God's great desire is that all men should know the truth of the gospel and be saved. And when we pray this prayer, we align our hearts with the desire and priority of his desires and plans. First Timothy chapter 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let me underscore that this request should be our priority. It should be something that we desire first of all when we come to him in prayer. Notice the order of the requests in this prayer. These requests about his name and about his kingdom and about his will come before the request for our needs and our forgiveness and our deliverance deliverance. Our first concern is to see God's will done in the world and in our church and in our lives. Let's be honest with ourselves. In our own heart, do we regularly make these kinds of prayer requests priority, and first in our prayers? Or are we more concerned about our job, our money, our health, our future, our family, our needs? Do we plead with God that his name be honored on the job where we work, in the schools where we study, in the homes where we live? Do we plead with God to expand his kingdom across the street to our neighbor and in our nation and in our world? Do we intercede for the unreached peoples of the world, which at this moment is about two billion people, that they may hear and understand and accept the good news of the gospel. In other words, 
Are we really praying for the kingdom to come? Is that your deep desire? Because it's God's desire and his plan. In this same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, comforts and necessities of life, will be given to you. Secondly, we should pray this prayer with an engaging commitment. These, the request in this verse, these two requests, end with this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And that final phrase probably applies to all three of the requests in these first three petitions. In other words, it should read, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On the personal level, this prayer means, Father, please cause me to obey your will the way the angels obey it in heaven. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, his angels that do his will. So, Lord, help me to do your will flawlessly and to do it with the same fervency and undivided devotion that the angels have in heaven. Make my obedience a heavenly obedience. But on the worldwide level, the meaning is even far greater. In heaven, there is nothing but obedience to the will of God. So when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying that on earth, the earth would be filled only with people who do the will of God the way the angels do it in heaven. And when we pray this prayer, we're also praying that God's kingdom had come in and through me. You can't pray this prayer without committing yourself to helping make it happen. That God would somehow use me, use us, to be part of the healing of this world. We're asking that God enable us to bring about God's kingdom of well-being for all God's people on earth. Black, white, red, yellow, whatever country, whatever nation, whatever tongue, this means we are making a commitment to participate in and be a part of this request. We're praying about our involvement in God's plan of redemption. Now remember, God's ultimate purpose is to bring people from all nations to enjoy and exalt Him in all of His glory. The world population is approximately today 8 billion people. In fact, I think just recently we passed that mark. 3 billion of those people, about 40%, are considered un 
reached with the gospel. Three billion people in over 7,000 people groups are currently unreached with the gospel, and they are on the road that leads to an eternal hell without ever even hearing how they can go to heaven. The term unreached here does not mean that these people are just lost. Unreached means that the people don't have access to the gospel. It's not that they can hear or have heard the gospel and they choose not to believe it. It's that they can't even hear it because no one around them knows it. So according to a report by David Platt, the specialist in missions, last year, 2021, well, I guess it's two years now, churches in the U.S., are expending approximately 1% of their mission resources among the 3 billion people in the 7,000 people groups who haven't heard the gospel. Christians are spending approximately 99% of their missions resources in places that already have been reached with the gospel. There are approximately 400,000 missionaries serving in the world today. And for this study, missionaries are defined as people who have moved somewhere else in order to spread the gospel. And out of those 400,000, only 11 to 12,000 that's 3% are going to unreached people groups. The fact that so few of our financial resources and missionaries are sent to the unreached is what is known as the great imbalance. But I'm very proud of our church because we don't fall into that pattern of allocating our resources and missionaries. Our church financially and prayerfully supports 23 partners, and we work with 18 sending organizations. Our total budget is $181,000. That's the missions budget, which is a little over 16% of our total budget. And 70% of our mission support goes to reach unreached people groups. 94% of our mission budget goes to partners who are out reaching those unreached groups. And for that, I'm very thankful and I'm very proud. I think this means that our church elders and our global partners team are taking seriously our commitment to fulfilling this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praise the Lord. But unless something changes and more churches tackle this issue, more people than ever before will go to hell because they have never heard 
the gospel. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are committing ourselves to the task of reaching the unreached, whether it's across the street or around the world. And if we fail, people will be lost forever. And God's name will not be honored as he desires. Third, seems to me that we must pray this prayer with personal surrender. Personal surrender to the will of God. It means not my will, but yours be done. If you are praying this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there will become a time when you suddenly have to stop in the presence of your heavenly Father and you have to be quiet and you realize that he is the king of all creation. And he wants to be king of your life. I just prayed that prayer with the deep desire that his will would be done on earth. And I could feel one morning during my sabbatical, God's eyes focusing on me, looking deep within my soul, without words, I, I could hear him say, will you surrender your heart to me so that I can do my will in your life? Will you give up control of your own little kingdom and submit to my rule in your life? Will you trust me and my love for you to do what is best for you? And during the weeks of my sabbatical, I came to that moment when my heart stopped and I bowed my head because I had nothing to say. You see, I am one of those that are driven by a desire to serve Christ and to do my best for him. I, I tend to find my self-worth measured by the many things that I can do for him. That's why we went to Africa for 35 years. And while this sounds like a noble goal, <clears throat> It's exhausting. Ultimately, it's unsustainable because it depends on how much I can accomplish for him. 
It depends on my own efforts and my own strength. Ultimately, it's a selfish goal that seeks to make me a man of God rather than a humble servant of God. It means that I want to control the way I serve him. What God impressed on me as I waited on him was the importance of my daily communion and relationship with him. And when it came down to it, what I wanted more than anything else was to know him, to experience communion with him, spending time in prayer, conversing with him, meditating on his word, his words to me, just enjoying the love and acceptance of his presence with me, learning to surrender my own will and my goals and my desires and submit to his will in every hour and situation became the most important value of my heart. Quite honestly, this was a personal battle. You see, I was afraid to yield control of my life to him. The biggest battle for me is that I wanted to retain control over my own decisions because I liked doing things for myself when I wanted to do them. I have secret little selfish pleasures that I simply did not want to give up. I was unwilling to pay the price to change. I wanted God's blessing, but I was unwilling to pay the sacrifice, the price to receive them. I would confess my sins, but I didn't repent and change my habits. I took communion, but I didn't take time to examine myself and confess my sins before him. I dedicated myself to his service, but I did not discipline myself to conform to his image. It was a kind of cheap grace, serving without sacrifice. I had fears that if I truly yielded to his will, I might put our future at risk. How would we pay for our basic needs? We had no savings as a safety net for our future. Could I really trust him to take care of me and my wife at our advancing age? Someone has said, surrendering to God is like God handing you a blank piece of paper and saying, sign at the bottom. And then give it back to me and I will fill in the details. And I was afraid to sign up for his will to be done in my life without knowing in advance what was coming.
But the choice has to be made. The quality of our relationship with God in Christ is so much more important than the quantity of our achievements that we do for Christ. And if I am ever to experience the life of God flowing through me, then I must yield my will to him. If I ever to know the full blessing of his friendship and his presence, then I must say, not my will, but thine be done. No matter what it costs. This is the decision that Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night he was crucified, he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it cost him his life. But because he humbled himself and yielded to the will of God, God raised him up and gave him a name that is above every name on earth and in heaven. For me, this surrender of my will to his will comes mostly in my times of prayer and meditation on his word. When I come into his presence and I pray that his name may be glorified and I pray that his kingdom will come and that his will may be done. And if I'm praying honestly and thoughtfully, my heart is changed. It is really my true desire that I can only submit my will to him and let him live in me. My priority desire is to know him and to experience him in deep communion throughout every day. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and prepare as we close our service. But I want to invite you to surrender your will and your life to the will of God in Christ. Don't wait until you are my age to make this decision, to find that sense of deep joy in communion with him. You may have been a believer for many years, and for a long time, you have tried to serve him with your own strength and abilities and skills. But you realize today you're exhausted and it's never going to be enough. In the presence of our Father and King, I'm going to invite you now to trust him to work in you and to change you 
and to use you according to his plans and his design. To say honestly, not my will, but thine be done. Here is God's invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, surrender to me, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come each one before you now, and we want to open our hearts to you. And we want to honestly say, Oh, Father, may your kingdom come into my life. May your will be done in my heart. Your will be done, not mine. I surrender to you, Father, all of my talents, all my future, all of my life, all of my efforts, not my will, Lord. Be the king of my life. I surrender all to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.